0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. Thank you for joining us as we count down to our milestone 200 episode. I'm Mary, and today's guest is Vera Sharapanova. Hi, Vera. It's lovely to have you here. Please tell us about yourself.
1: Hi, Mary. Let me start from saying thank you for inviting me to your podcast. I feel privileged to be with you today and to be able to talk about the things that matter to ethics and compliance professionals. Thank you. And obviously, congratulations on the 200 episodes (laughs) milestone. I think this is very, very impressive. Thank you. So now about myself. I'm the founding partner of Milan-based boutique ethics and compliance consultancy, which is called Studio Ethica. And I know that to my Anglo-Saxon friends, this name sounds a bit funny. I hope it sounds a little bit less funny in Italian. (laughs) So we advise clients around the world with a particular focus on europe Uh, Mm -hmm. we work with marketing corporations in industries such as fmcg construction building materials telecoms as well as international not-for-profits like oecd for example and the educational sector prior to founding studio etica i was a regional compliance officer i worked in house Mm -hmm. actually for 11 years on various Mm -hmm positions, starting from internal auditing and then moving to anti-corruption field and then to the original compliance role. At Studio Ethica, what we do and what makes us different as we like to think about it is our focus on the ethical side, on the ethics side of Mm. ethics and compliance. We help organizations achieve ethics-driven cultural transformations that drive not only legal compliance, but rather lead to enhanced integrity and
0: positive behavioral change. More on that in a minute. So that's us. That's wonderful. Thank you. Great experience and good to have the European focus. There are so many service and solution providers in the United States that it's lovely to come across one of the vendors that is specialised in European area and covering so many more clients. So a couple of the areas that you focus on are behavioural risk and behavioural change. What does each one mean and what's an actionable idea to, first off, help practitioners think in a more dedicated way about behavioral risk in their compliance programs, and then what about how you best effect um, positive behavioral change in organizations? A great question.
1: Indeed, a behavioral lens to ethics and compliance is a topic of my big personal and professional interest. Why people follow the rules? Why people at times break the rules? When Mm -hmm. our values are in conflict, how do we make a decision which course of action to pursue? Mm -hmm. All of these interesting, difficult, complex, intriguing, whatever questions led me to behavioral science some five years ago. And as you rightly framed it in your question, Mary, behavioral risk management has two parts, behavioral risk assessments and behavioral change that obviously builds on assessments. In broad terms, behavioral risk is the risk of unwanted behavior, including various various types of uh, misconduct, Mm -hmm. leading to poor decisions or outcomes for the Mm -hmm. organization Mm -hmm. or its stakeholders. Looking through a a behavioral risk lens means looking at the organizational culture and Mm -hmm. how the culture steers employee behavior towards what's expected and what's the accepted standard of behavior. As we have seen in many recent corporate scandals, and we continue to see it in in today's scandals like Mm -hmm. SVB, for example, and today we have health What was that health outcome, owners convicted of fraud, et cetera. So Mm -hmm. we see, we continue to see the same trend. Mm -hmm. An ethical culture can compromise the effectiveness of ethics and compliance program in many Mm -hmm. ways, but most importantly, by sending the wrong signal of what's the accepted behavior, standard Mm -hmm. of behavior in this organization. In the workplace, people learn what's the right thing to do by observation. They Mm -hmm. observe their peers and their managers, what those people are doing, and they copy. Behaviors that they see repeatedly are called cultural norms. This is the standard norm of behavior, right? And Mm -hmm. when asked about the drivers of such behaviors, people would normally say, Oh, that's how the things are done here. That's how Mm. we do things here. And it's also a very popular street language style definition of organizational culture. So you see that the culture and the behaviors are very much connected. Mm. So on the behavioral risk assessment, this is essentially a horizon scanning and zooming in on potential risk hotspots. So what you do, you look at your organization, you go one by one on your allocations, in subsidiaries, departments, teams, whatever you prefer, entities inside of your organization, you make a kind of an intelligent guess where the problems around behavioral risk can be. By intelligent guess, of course, it's not like a guess. You have many sources of data that can be available, source of information here, and that could guide you where you should be looking and Mm -hmm. making a deep dive, internal audit reports, whistleblowing reports, what management is asking you to look at, what Mm -hmm. kind of concerns they have, the board, the audit committee, et cetera, et cetera. All of those, any kind of HR satisfaction engagement surveys that your company has run in the past. Scan all that, and that would guide you where you should be zooming in. By zooming in, I mean a very particular thing, because I find that this thing is quite different to what most organizations right now do with, in terms of their cultural assessments. Mm-hmm. The standard practice is to run that company-wide survey. But mm-hmm. we believe that surveys are not necessarily true, because problems really lie in the average. Mm-hmm. Problems are usually in the granular. Mm-hmm. And when you make a company-wide survey, what you do is you're like averaging out your problems. What we do instead, we do subculture audits. We look at subcultures one by one. For example, we have found with our horizon scanning that this team here poses, potentially poses some behavioral risk in terms of excessive risk taking or whatever. And we go there, we send there a squad, and what they do, they essentially just sit and observe, right? One of the most important. Things that they do, they sit in a fly on the wall. What are the local heroes? How the meetings go? Who speaks first? Who speaks last? Why? What people think about risk? What mm-hmm. people think about misconduct? What's accepted? What's not accepted? What people think about ethics? What is ethical to them and what is mm-hmm. unethical to them? So we have all of those questions on the background and we observe. And when we feel it's necessary, we would talk to them, for example, make some kind of an interview or a focus group or whatever. And that would help us to understand if there is an elevated element of behavioral risk over there. So behavioral risk is very context specific. And that's why this focus and zooming in on subcultures makes a lot of sense.
0: Like a proactive mentorship, it sounds like. So you're basically embedding yourself somewhat in the business To truly understand more than what maybe a typical external party that provides risk assessment services, you're really, when you mention the fly on the wall and attending day-to-day meetings, you're really having a much closer look than some of the traditional, say, risk assessment type activities and getting involved almost as if you were a team member. So viewing things from the inside out rather than perhaps the outside in as vendors often do.
1: Bottom-up, exactly. You're right on the point. The bottom-up flow, which in my experience, quite oftentimes is missing. Because mm-hmm. what comes top-down and what the leaders think that people are doing, it can be very different to the operational reality. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the key objectives here is to ensure the flow of the correct and realistic information of what's going on the working floor to, to the leadership team. Now, on behavioral change, on the second part of the question Mm -hmm. on behavioral change, behavioral change is the next phase and Mm -hmm. builds on the risk assessment. If we know our hotspots, we can then intervene to mitigate the behavioral risk we've identified and to change the problematic and unwanted behaviors. Again, it's very very important to be super specific about what exactly we would like to see happen, which Mm -hmm. behavior we want to change and how it needs to change. And then based on this targeted approach and knowing this target behavior and the context, you're able, you're in a better position to, to, to select the type of intervention mm-hmm. because there are lots of them. But there is a group of interventions that looks at the individual, the I-frame interventions. There is another big group that looks at the systems level, the S-frame interventions. And the first step implementing an intervention is getting together with the whole team. And having an open discussion led by the manager, not by the compliance officer, not by anybody external, but by the team leader, the manager, because that's important that they take the full ownership of this behavioral risk and problematic behavior. And so Mm -hmm. the manager walks them and talks them through why this is problematic. What's the sense of urgency? Why do we need this change? Why we see this behavior as problematic and unwanted? What is the new expected standard of behavior and what is required of the employees to achieve it? Many companies, I think, make a mistake here, having unrealistic expectations of the length of the behavioral intervention projects. Mm-hmm. For example, the debiasing training programs. Has recently gained a lot of traction specifically in the framework of DEI initiative and what companies do they have they run a one-hour training session and they think that it's enough for for a de-biasing I think it's a bit naive to Mm -hmm. say the least because if you've been biased the whole of your life because of the country general context and whatever right it's very naive to think that after an hour of an awareness training you're going to be a whole different person of course not Mm -hmm. but that's a nice starting Mm -hmm. point Mm -hmm. it's important to keep in mind that for the actual change to happen and for the new behaviors to stick it's key to have a series of reinforcing experiences nudges communications over weeks or better months yeah after the implementation of the intervention
0: Wow, really interesting stuff here, so I'm guessing you do quite a lot in terms of change management as well. I think that's very much connected, yeah, yeah, and uh, again,
1: a lot of myths here, how easy it is to, to for the new behavior to stick, et cetera. So we talk a lot, we talk a lot with potential clients, for example, uh, first of all, there are lots of myths about the effectiveness because behavioral approach is very experimental and the thir- the first thing that i do i say upfront we will try to make the best guess and select the right type of intervention based on our analysis background etc background research etc but that might be that the in- the intervention is not going to change the behavior mm. at all or it's gonna change the behavior in a very different way, not mm-hmm. as we intended. Because if you think about if you think about the drivers of the behavior, there are lots of them. There are psychological drivers, there are sociological drivers, there are drivers coming from the broader environment around the person, et cetera, et cetera. And if you think about the organization, it's a super complex system with many drivers and many mm-hmm. people and behaviors, et cetera, all in a very crazy mix. And when you start trying to ticket it here, ticket it there, mm-hmm. and find some entry points to make certain changes, mm-hmm. it can potentially be that it's not going to work upfront, right? So the important thing here is to be very experimental and also to take into account that it's going to take
0: effort, consistency, mm-hmm. and time. Great points, thank you. I know that you're also interested in speak-up cultures, What's something that you feel a lot of companies do not do that they should that would improve their speak-up culture?
1: Oh, I think we are – that's a great point. I think we are all interested in Mm. speak-up culture today, especially here in Europe because we Mm -hmm. have this whistleblowing directive, Mm. which is – which officially came into effect some time ago. Right now Mm -hmm. we're in a transposition process and European countries inside of the European Union are – on various stages there are countries that are already done everything have already done everything and they have transposed the directive and they have new laws etc there are also outsiders who have even started that process so it's not very balanced at this point Mm -hmm. anyway anyway we're moving to a one umbrella standard for the Mm -hmm. whole union which is a good thing of course Answering your question, I think that psychological safety is one of the one of the elements or dimensions of organizational culture ethical or otherwise. And how you treat whistleblowers says a lot about how you walk your compliance talk. Mm-hmm. And I have three points here regarding what companies do, what they should be doing and what they shouldn't be doing. Point number 1 Many, if not most, companies still believe that zero reports is a good thing.
0: I find this absolutely
1: astonishing.
0: (laughs) Typically people who don't seem to have compliance backgrounds and experience that are the first that are going to state no compliance reports, therefore we're super ethical.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm absolutely, I don't have any words because I do hear these things very regularly still in 2023 i can't believe this point number two many if not most companies routinely disregard and don't react to reports that that actually come on the hotline with many different motivations oh this is not the kind of reports that we wanted to have right we want to have serious reports on corruption or bribery or fraud or whatever And we only get HR reports that some manager is yelling at the team members, or we got a report that it's 40 degrees Celsius outside, it's summer, it's hot, and our air conditioning is not working. We're not going to respond to that because it has nothing to do with our job responsibility. And educating compliance officers to look differently at this and making the most of any kind of interaction with a whistleblower, because you never know, maybe This person is just trying you out. Maybe this person has something serious to say, but she just wants to try. How you Mm. would react? Would you listen? Would you care? Mm. Point number three, many, if not most companies still retaliate. It's not necessarily Mm. about firing those who report. Instead of a promotion, you're relocated to not very popular location or They promise you to, you know, a stellar project and you're not getting it anymore, things Mm -hmm. like that. Together with all that, all of the companies continue to write declarative statements on the importance of speaking Mm -hmm. up, Mm -hmm. in their code of conduct, in the policy, Mm -hmm. on the website, in their sustainability Mm -hmm. reports, etc., etc. And all of that means only one thing to the employees, double standards. I agree. Don't trust them. It's a trap. Mm-hmm. Don't trust them. It's a trap. At the very least, nothing is going to get done. So mm-hmm. it's futile. Or worse, you will get yourself in trouble. So don't report anything. Don't say anything.
0: Yeah, this sounds like absolute back-to-basic stuff for many of us, but there's no getting away from the data that shows that of late retaliation instances, both the complaints and substantiated cases are up uh, uh, across all of the organizations I've seen that that track this data. So we're in a culture of integrity crisis right now. And you might be feeling, oh, this is ridiculous. I work so hard on non-retaliation. But realistically, and we spoke a little bit offline about this, Vera, is are you yourself making a decorative statement and non-retaliation policies and thinking, okay, that should suffice? But what about, are you going to your people and saying, what could we do? that would make you fear retaliation less. And this idea comes from Adam Balfour of Bridgestone, who did do that. And the response from his colleagues was, we want to hear stories about people who did speak up. And when you hear that versus what we intuitively or instinctively try to do as compliance officers, which is simply reiterate the non-retaliation policy and that it's safe to speak up. That's two different solutions. So maybe that's part of why we're not adequately managing to address this. And of course, for those of you who missed Jane Norberg's session from the formerly from the Office of the Whistleblower at the Securities and Exchange Commission, I would strongly encourage you to listen to that episode to hear about some of the common pitfalls that companies make when their colleagues are speaking up first internally and what can drive them to go externally. So, Vera, really appreciate that insight there that you're seeing the same types of things. In the European space, I think this is representative of the global trends that we're seeing here. Any other tips that you want to share about speaking up before we move on? Regarding the speaking up, we
1: were in a con at a conference with Mary quite recently, and there was a lovely session on whistleblowing delivered by a compliance officer and a whistleblowing lawyer. And, and the final, the final closing remark from them was unfortunately at this point of time we still would say to a potential whistleblower this if you want to go ahead with it and blowing the whistle and raising raising your voice first mm-hmm. get a lawyer <laughs> and yeah. my only wish is that this is no longer necessary
0: yeah i love that wish list r- requirement that would be amazing i totally agree Thank you for that. Vera, you're originally from Russia and living in Italy as an expat there. What's it like practicing compliance and living in Italy?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. I think it's great. Uh, (laughs) I think it's really great. I have never lived so good so well in my um, life. Uh, Italy is a great place. You eat well, you drink well, <laughs> you're surrounded by beauty, wherever you go. Yeah, You have sun almost every day and you mm. don't spend a fortune to have all that. Mm. That's very important. I think it's a great place to live. It's a great place to be. There is a lot to learn in terms of the lifestyle in terms of the life priorities from the Italians. I think they're very, I will not say basic, because mm-hmm. basic doesn't sound positive, but mm-hmm. it's positive basic, meaning that they... They follow the seasons. They tend to be very close to nature. They tend to... They're slow Mm -hmm. in their pace. Mm -hmm. They are not rushing into... Mm -hmm. It took me quite a while to get used to that, by the way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. In terms of the compliance community, I think it's quite a close one because of the language and because of the fact that here, compliance is still viewed as the extension of legal. Mm -hmm. And if you're not a qualified Italian lawyer... People would say, "Oh, you don't get it. You don't understand it. You don't know it." So there is room for improvement in that. And you also have a you're not a qualified Italian lawyer, right? Yeah,
0: Yeah. I'm not a lawyer at all. Yeah, proving (laughs) that you can accomplish, you can overcome such barriers, but perhaps it is a challenge.
1: Yeah, but that said, they are still very interested in the behavioral thing that resonates a lot because Mm -hmm. I think they. They actually do the things around psychology, sociology. They tend to like them on some general level. So I think this is a very interesting journey. I mm-hmm. think this is a very interesting journey. And it is very exciting to be here and to see how the detailing complex community is evolving and what's happening.
0: It's great. Good. That's really wonderful to hear. It is one of my absolute favorite countries, so I'm very envious. Substantively, what are some of the ethics and compliance issues you're seeing practitioners in Europe grappling with the most right now?
1: There are a couple of important legal developments on the level of requirements. There is the CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, which came into effect on the 1st of January this year. And that means that the large companies will need to report new data sets, ESG data sets, on the 1st of January, Mm 2020. And that means that if they are not collecting the data right now, I would say they're a bit in trouble. Mm -hmm. They should have started already. That's a headache Mm -hmm. because this directive is all about the non-financial reporting. We had the non-financial reporting directive, That was a very old directive. And the requirements were very basic. Right now, there are new data sets. There are new categories of data to be reported. Mm -hmm. The main headache is where to get those data and who Mm -hmm. needs to be in charge of all that and how you need to ensure the inflow of that data on a continuous basis. That's Mm -hmm. number one. Number two, supply chains. Another directive, directive on corporate sustainability due diligence, probably is finally coming this year because we've mm-hmm. been talking about this directive for already two years at least. There is an important vote on it. I think it's early May. We'll see how that one goes. But if it's going to be finally adopted, a large organizations will be required to identify, prevent, Mitigate and end adverse impacts of their activities on human rights and environment all the tiers down their supply chains, and this is of course quite tricky because mm-hmm. I would guess that not all of the organizations know right. to start with mm-hmm. all of the tiers of their supply chains, right? Mm-hmm. And an incredible challenge. PR trade sanctions this is both an ongoing pain. Yeah, uh, I think this year sanctions are a little bit less. Because last year, it was a disaster. It was an absolute disaster. (laughs) For For obvious reasons. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Because we had, I think we had eight or nine packages of sanctions and Mm -hmm. trade restrictions. Yeah. And they were coming one after another. Yeah. And uh, we just couldn't figure out because we were trying to figure out and to fix the situation at some point after every. Package, but mm. that was absolutely futile mm. because we couldn't guess what's going to go with the next one. And we said in May that, oh, this is OK. But in July, that was no longer OK to do. The trade compliance officer here in Europe, that's for sure, is the person of the year 2023 22. That's That's for sure.
0: A lot of things there to consider. And I think even if companies aren't aware, there are certainly vendors rushing into the space to help with some of those supply chain requirements. Full transparency here, I'm on the advisory board for US Group in the US, and that's certainly an area that they've been focusing on to help organizations that have this quite burdensome and onerous task of really getting transparency and understanding what's going on in the supply chain. I think there's certainly help out there and it's it's needed, but to your point, do companies even realize they need to make a start on this? And if they need assistance, are they triggering that request internally and getting the help that they need? So a lot of things going on there, and I think you're right at that sanctions is a little gentler now than last year, which is probably a huge relief to our colleagues who focus specifically on that area. And Vera, I've got one more question for you. It, it's quite an interesting one for me as I've never done this. You took a two-year career break and spent part of this time focusing on a book you published in 2016. Congratulations on authoring the first book in Russian on corporate compliance. And in light of that, I'd love to understand, especially with the benefit of hindsight and looking back, would you recommend taking a break to others? That's a great question. Thank you. Thank you for bringing up the book of course.
1: My pleasure. Well. Yes. The short answer is absolutely yes. I would recommend taking a break to anyone because I think that there was a very important, a very important part of my career, a very important time of reflection mm-hmm. on what's been done and what I want to do next. And that gave a meaning to everything that followed. Because before that, it was more like, everyone else is doing that i need mm. to do to be doing that and mm-hmm. what are my peers doing ex colleagues friends etc cetera, etc cetera. what are the expectations from parents relatives i don't know again friends husband family whatever of me uh, but when i paused i finally asked myself what do i want what do i really want in, with my career mm-hmm. do i want to be in a corporation and climb that corporate Career ladder, or do you want to do something else? Do I want to stay in ethics and compliance, or I want to grow grapes and make wine? All of those difficult questions and all of those important reflections. And based on that, on the on those reflections, we did a lot of big changes for our family because we moved to Italy in that period. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book. And the book was a, like a summary of my 11 years experience in it. That was like a, all of my key learnings and highlights from that journey. Um, and I founded Studio Ethical because I understood that at that point of time, maybe corporate life was no longer for me. So I think it was very a very productive break, which triggered a lot of big changes. Those changes so far... Proved to be good changes mm. for that. And that's why, yes, absolutely. It's a great way to give a meaning to
0: everything that you do. Excellent. Sounds good. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have to, for today, but I'm so grateful to you for your time. and Insights, Vera, wonderful, much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing your star continue to rise. Thank you for all that you've contributed to the compliance community and, of course, this episode today.
1: Thank you very so much for having me and for the great questions. It was a great pleasure And we will continue our exchange on LinkedIn and elsewhere. Thank you for listening.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.